Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 2 and 3. Mark chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse 23 of Mark chapter 2. As we continue working our way through Mark's gospel, we will look at the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 together uh, this morning. For the sake of our reading, I'll pick up in verse 23 of chapter 2 and read through verse 12 of chapter 3. And it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. And he had healed many, with the result that all those who had Afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Well, I suppose I can probably put off the inevitable and just go ahead and say it from the outset. We are a bunch of hypocrites. You probably noticed that from the passage today um, with regard to the Pharisees, and we are unfortunately so much like them. But it's interesting as we think about being hypocritical, being Pharisaical, we tend, particularly as religious people, to be more hypocritical and more Pharisaical in areas of religion than in other areas. I mean, just think about an easy illustration with me for a moment. I'm assuming everyone in here has been to a fast food restaurant, at least once, some of you once per day. (laughs) I had that season in my life too, so (laughs) I hope it's over, but college was fun, so. (laughs) Um, It's probably also safe to assume that every one of you who've been to a fast food restaurant have probably also gotten the wrong food through the drive-thru, or even eating inside. In fact, I'm willing to bet that there's no one in here who's never got the wrong order at a fast food restaurant. Unless you've only been once or twice, then maybe you've gotten it right. Some of you are so paranoid about getting the right thing, you sit in the drive-thru line and sort through the entire bag to make sure they gave it all to you because you know that they're probably not going to give you everything that you ordered. And all of us behind you know that the food has come out and we just sit waiting for you to move on. But when it comes to areas of religion, Christianity, we typically don't live by the same standards 
as we do in other areas of life. So, though you have received again and again, if you're like me, the wrong thing at a fast food restaurant, you keep going back. You might check a little more next time, but you just keep going back. It's, you just have areas. We have these areas of our lives where we are tempted to show more grace. You know, the area that we're least likely to show grace and mercy and to not be hypocritical and pharisaical is the area of religion and of Christianity. We typically just don't live by the same standards nor pursue the same level of consistent integrity in non-religious circumstances and situations. Why not? Because we are religious hypocrites. We are Pharisees big and Pharisees small. We live with the motto of rules for thee, but not for me. We see it all around us. And it is so easy to point out. Our entire nation has watched over the past week as political opponents have been arrested for something that the current administration is guilty of. And we can see it plain as day. The reason that hypocrisy is so glaringly clear to all of us is because we are so well acquainted with it. But the Pharisees in Jesus' day were religious hypocrites. They were the religious police. And they were incredibly fond of the negative. Far more fond of the negative than the positive. They had a long list of rules for other people. And they expected other people to live by those rules. We've been looking at the Pharisees, some in the previous weeks with the earlier portion of this chapter here in the Gospel of Mark. And we have noted that the Pharisees sought out salvation by segregation, separating themselves out, rather than salvation by association. Salvation by association with Jesus primarily, and then as an extension, association with Jesus' people. And in their attempt to police religion, and in their fond of negative rules for others, these clashes with Christ have continued to happen. We're looking at the number four and five in this list of five clashes that we've looked at over the past, including today, three weeks together. The first one, chapter two, verse seven, they said, he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Chapter two, verse 16, why is Jesus eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Or verse 18, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples, Jesus, why do they not fast? And it brings us to this morning, verse 24 of chapter 2. Look, why are they, your disciples, to Jesus, doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And then in chapter 3, verse 2, they, the Pharisees, were watching Jesus to see if he would heal the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. Now, these recorded conflicts here that are happening one after the next and gaining in intensity, they are here not so much revealing what the rules are or are not, but they are exposing that the real question in society, in the world at large, is not what the rules are, but who rules. And that's what we see being exposed here in these clashes, these conflicts with Christ. Not, is this a rule about fasting or is that a rule about the Sabbath? But who is the ruler? Who is the king? I've split the sermon up into two points this morning. The law of the Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath. So the first story at the end of chapter 2, the law of the Sabbath. The second story, the Lord of the Sabbath. And a lot of it crosses over with regard to those themes, but we'll work through it as the Lord allows. Under the law of the Sabbath, considering the precedent of David, also the provocative display of mercy, the purpose of the Sabbath and the principle of the Sabbath. And then underneath the Lord of the Sabbath, we'll look at the declaration of Christ's authority, I am Lord of the Sabbath. 
and the display of Christ's authority. Stretch out your hand. So the law of the Sabbath, the Lord of the Sabbath. The passage is not anti-Sabbath, not in any way. The passage is anti-Pharisee, anti-hypocrite. I've titled the sermon, Breaking the Law. But not because Jesus was breaking the law, but that's what he's accused of. He was not breaking the law of God. He was violating the man-made laws that were put in place by these Pharisees along with their empty traditions. That They had put laws in place regarding the Sabbath, a catalog of them, 39 principal points with regard to the Sabbath alone, and six subpoints under each one of those 39 principal points. That's 234 regulations emphasizing, leaning towards the negative, that they've put in place with regard to the Sabbath. Things like not taking more than 1,999 steps on the Sabbath. Now, I checked just before I came up here, and oddly enough, I was at 3,099 steps. I've already broken the Sabbath according to their ridiculous rules. I I merely stumbled into the kitchen, made coffee, stumbled into the dining room, sat for an hour, stumbled into the bathroom to shower, helped the kids get ready, to the van, to the church. I did have to go upstairs when I got here. But the Sabbath is broken according to their man-made regulations. Or untying knots. I broke that one this morning too. There was a knot in Jonathan's shoe. It was double-knotted last time. I had to take it out. Again, these are the kinds of ridiculous things that the Pharisees had put in place. They had enshrined a mountain of man-made foolish traditions, expecting other people primarily to keep them. Now, in the Old Testament, there are 613 laws. Is that not enough? 248 of those are positive, 365 negative. Was that not enough? They had to go and add all of these others. Again, the passage is not anti-Sabbath. It's easy for us to, to read it and think, man, the Sabbath is bad. No, their understanding of the Sabbath is bad. The law of God is never bad. Our understanding of it can be out of whack. There's structure that comes with the benefit of the Sabbath. It is intended by God to be a blessing and not a burden. The Sabbath should be, for God's people, a delight and not drudgery. And in fact, if we take advantage of the Sabbath, it can be a blessing by addition as well as by distraction. We are called to do different things on the Lord's day, and we're called to not do certain things. What we see in the passage is that the Sabbath was made for us. This is from the mouth of the Lord, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, according to this passage. And he says the Sabbath is made for you. It's made for man. So we should ask ourselves here, and if I can remember, we'll do it again in the end. In what ways are you taking advantage of it for your benefit and for the benefit of others? The law of the Sabbath. We see it first revealed in creation. In the very beginning, God created. He created on days one through six, and on day seven, He rested. It's no surprise that with an attempt to get completely away from an honoring of the Lord's day, that not only in our culture now do we give very little attention to worshiping God on his day, but there's less and less attention to what God did on those other days, namely creating male and female. God created specific male and female and gave roles and responsibilities. And we see the degeneration happening Or we can go to the Decalogue where the law of the Sabbath shows up again in the fourth commandment. And it's no surprise that not only is 
the fourth commandment deteriorating with regard to us giving ourselves to God on the first day of the week as his people, we are also living in a culture that completely ignores the sixth commandment. Do not murder. Or the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. We live in a society that is rampant with these sins. Doesn't take much to see the connection of ignoring one leads to the ignoring of more. Now, you may be thinking, like, particularly during this time, the Sabbath would have been on the final day of the week. And the circumstance of the Sabbath has been moved from Saturday to Sunday. And it was done, we see in the New Testament, in order to commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, the apostles make this transition in order to commemorate the, Sabbath, the resurrection and the circumstance of the Sabbath. If there was no need for an ongoing abiding expectation among the people of God, the apostles could have easily done away with the Sabbath concept altogether. But rather than that, they chose to reflect the new covenant circumstances of the Sabbath by gathering together as God's people on the first day of the week, commemorating the resurrection of Christ. Or Jesus himself in the Olivet Discourse, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 24, says regarding the Sabbath, pray that when the abomination of desolation comes, when the destruction that is coming to Jerusalem, pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Why? Because if that destruction comes on a Sabbath, it may potentially restrict the ability of God's people to get out of harm's way. As a result, it didn't come on a Sabbath. God heard the prayers that would have been prayed as a result of Jesus encouraging them to, and no Christians actually were killed when the destruction of Jerusalem happened in A.D. 70. So the law of the Sabbath, it has not been abrogated it hasn't been rescinded but passages like this bring questions to our minds and so it's helpful for us to spend some time thinking through it I mean the accusation here the Pharisees said to Jesus look why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath what they mean what what they are saying is your disciples are breaking the law of the Sabbath they are working on the Sabbath They're harvesting, they're threshing, they're winnowing, and they're preparing. Now, that's a fancy way to say they picked grain and ate it. But they accuse them of breaking the law four times over. That's what's implied in this question here from the Pharisees to Jesus. Do you know what the law actually says regarding that? Deuteronomy 23, 25. You may pluck the heads with your hand but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. Oh. So, based on the law of God, what the disciples of Jesus are doing is completely within the realm of being okay. Just consider the moment, the reality of the Messiah being there. The, the long-hoped-for, anticipated one who has been accomplishing signs and healing the sick and raising the dead. And, and look at what the Pharisees have chosen to complain about. They have a passion for the, for the periphery. They are enthralled with the edges. May God help us to guard ourselves against living for these trifles. And living for outward show, which was their issue. The law of the Sabbath. Jesus answers their accusation with, initially, the precedent of David. Jesus said to them, verse 25, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God at the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. David's actions were sanctioned, here recorded by Scripture. Jesus is saying that it's okay. They're not condemned. David was on the run. He was running for his life at this time when this story happened. And he eats the showbread from the temple. It wasn't okay for David to eat it, but he does. 
Jesus is saying, if David can follow the spirit of the divine ceremonial law, then does not David's greater son have the right to set aside a completely unwarranted man-made Sabbath regulation? Absolutely he does. But that's not the way the Pharisees heard it. I mean, again, imagine the setting. Consider the audacity of Jesus to accuse these Pharisees, religious experts, of unfamiliarity with the Old Testament. Have you not read? Jesus answers their inquiry with the scriptures. Not much makes a Pharisee more mad than hearing the truth of God's word. I mean, consider, they are proud of their biblical knowledge. They are impressed with their own adherence to their so-called knowledge. And we can feel it. We know what it feels like. We don't like hypocrisy being exposed. It's the whole point of hypocrisy. It's putting on a mask. Pretending to be something that you're not. Every response to every accusation, like what we see from Jesus here, could be and should be, what does the Bible say? I mean, they ask a question. Why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Jesus didn't say, because it's okay. He said, what does the Bible say about it? Have you not read what David did? There's a precedent there in Scripture. The Scriptures are full of precedents and principles for us to take full advantage of in every area of life. Jesus is not anti-law. He's not saying, look, David broke the the law. It's okay for me and my disciples to break the law. He's not any more anti-law than he is anti-Sabbath. He is, however, pro-Scripture. He's pro-Bible. Now, if you were listening closely during the complimentary reading that Luke read for us from 1 Samuel 21, where this story is originally recorded, you may have noted that the high priest who's listed in each of these sections is a different guy. What are we going to do with that? It's one of these contradictions. Let's throw it all out. Mark mentions here that Abiathar is the high priest, but when... The story is recorded in Samuel. It's Ahimelech, uh, who is the high priest. So Ahimelech was the father of Abiathar, and Abiathar also had a son named Ahimelech. What is most likely is that Abiathar that Mark references and Ahimelech that Samuel references were both present when David came to Nob, when he's fleeing for his life. It's most likely true that they were both there at the temple and that David and his men received bread from father and son. Very soon after the story happens, Abiathar, the father, was killed and Ahimelech, his son, became the high priest and recorded the details of the situation. So referring to Abiathar as the high priest and Ahimelech as the high priest both make sense even though both of them were not the high priest at the same time. We refer to people with titles in this way outside of chronology often. Consider this. President Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence. You see any problem with the statement? It makes perfect sense. It's the way that we talk. But when Thomas Jefferson drafted the Declaration of Independence in 1776, well, it was ratified in 1776, He was not the president. He became the president later, but we refer to him in an ongoing way as President Thomas Jefferson. So chronology is not the emphasis here. Both Abiathar and Ahimelech served one right after the next as a high priest. So rather than a contradiction here, it is merely speaking in terms that humans understand. And people were more familiar in Jesus' day that of the season in which Abiathar, who had a father and a son named Ahimelech, but they were familiar with Abiathar, and Jesus uses that to couch this phrase in order that they might know exactly the story that they're talking about, that he's talking about and referring to. 
Have you never read what David did? The precedent of David. But it's not just the precedent of David with regard to the law of the Sabbath. There's this provocative display of mercy on the Sabbath. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. This is uncommon. Jesus is the most humble man who's ever lived. He's going away from people in most of these settings, getting away from the crowds. But here he's in a synagogue on the Sabbath, and he recognizes what's going on. He knows what's in the heart of man. We've already seen him telling these Pharisees and scribes what they were thinking and asking them why they were thinking in such a way, he recognizes that they have planted a man here with a withered hand. I mean, surely we feel sorry for that guy who's he's come to show and tell at the Sabbath. He has no desire for attention to be on him. He's disabled. He's being used. Jesus recognizes that. But there's a provocative display of mercy from Jesus here. He doesn't just wait until the service is over. He doesn't go quietly. He doesn't say the word from afar. He doesn't go and sit down. He knows what's going on. And in order to reveal who he is and what he's come to do and to show the Pharisees their primary problem with their understanding of the Sabbath and of the Messiah, he says, get up and come forward. Get up and come forward. They are trying to trap me. I will put it on display who I am and what I've come to do. The purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus continues there in verse 4. He says to these Pharisees, calling the man to the front, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? To save a life or to kill? Which is lawful? You legal experts, is it lawful to do good? Is it lawful to do harm? Should I heal? Should I not? Should I save? Should I kill? Jesus is is revealing that their interpretation of God's will fosters death. It is doing harm and killing And Jesus is exposing their wrong understanding of Sabbath rest. The purpose of the Sabbath is for rest and regaining strength for further work. It is day one and day eight. Day eight in a sense of resting from the previous week's work and usual labors. And day one of worshiping and preparing for the coming week. The Sabbath is not, the purpose of the Sabbath is not for prolonging disability in this specific case that we see here in chapter 3, ensuring that no work will be done. So Jesus asked the question, is it lawful? But they kept silent. Experts with nothing to say. It was not wrong to help the man. You know what was wrong? It was wrong not to help him. The priority must always be people, especially with regard to traditions and rituals. They must fall to the wayside for the sake of God's people. Jesus makes clear that providing something to eat when his disciples are strolling through the village Providing something to eat for his disciples on the Sabbath does not transgress God's law, even if it infringes on the narrow understanding and application of the Pharisees. What is the purpose of the Sabbath? To do good, to save. And it's helpful to think about also the principle of the Sabbath. Now, if we were to define The Sabbath in our cultural context, I think we can sum it up by, in in two words, confusion by some and corruption by others. In our day, professing Christians hold views that range from total irrelevance regarding Sunday to strict Jewish-style Saturday, Seventh-day Sabbatarianism on the other. 
That is a wide gulf, almost unending. The Sabbath principle affirms that our lives should be characterized by work. When we think about Sabbath, we primarily run to a day of rest. And that's true. But it should be, our lives should be characterized by work. If there's no work, there's nothing to rest from. Right? God created. God rested. Fourth commandment, six days you labor. Right? In this commandment, 85% of it is that you work. Six out of seven days. That's the expectation. I find it helpful to, to try to grasp and understand the expectations and the principles as a rhythm, a toil and a rest, a work and a worship, a labor and a leisure. Six days you toil and work and labor, and one day you rest and you worship and you cease from the normal labor. So what can we do? What, what can we do with regard to the Sabbath principle, what can we do to promote Christ-likeness and holiness, which is God's will for our life? How can we take advantage of the principle of the Sabbath? We can rest from our normal work. Now, everyone doesn't have that privilege, but most of us do. We can worship with greater intentionality. All of us have that privilege. We can give more time to using the means of grace, privately and collectively, and This is allowed as we're able to rest from normal work and helps us with worshiping with greater intentionality. In thinking through this text over the past week, one one thought that came to mind that kind of just kept stirring around in my mind, and I've tried to congeal it into a single statement, one Sabbath rule or principle should be for us to not judge other people's Sabbath-keeping. That would help a lot of us rest more on the Sabbath. I say Sabbath-keeping. We we think of that. We we think of it as Sabbath-keeping, but actually the command itself doesn't say that. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So there is a keeping, but it's not keeping the Sabbath. It's keeping it separate. Six days you do all your labor, And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath day unto the Lord. So the the Sabbath principle is to remember the Sabbath and keep it separate. Intentionally worshiping the Lord. Resting from the normal requirements and expectations of life and labor. That's the law of the Sabbath. The Lord of the Sabbath. The declaration of the Lord's authority and the display of the Lord's authority. Now, we haven't brought a lot of attention to it up until now, but Jesus, in his conversations with others, his disciples as well as the Pharisees, has has drawn attention to a few titles. In chapter 2, verse 10, he calls himself the Son of Man, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. In chapter 2, verse 17, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician. He's he's calling himself. He is the great physician. Or chapter 2, verse 19, while the bridegroom is with them, Jesus is calling himself the bridegroom. And here now in verse 28, the last verse of chapter 2, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Here's Jesus saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Now these Pharisees knew very well who instituted the Sabbath. God instituted it. That's probably the only part they give him credit for. They made all these extra laws with regard to it, but they knew that God instituted it. And now we have Jesus standing before them saying, I am Lord of this day. He's claiming right before them to be God. It's no wonder they set him up in the next passage there. Whether it was the next Sabbath day or one later down the road, Mark has put them back to back. Other gospel writers do the same looking at the, the importance of understanding these aspects, both the law of the Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am God. I made this day. I will determine what is okay to do and not do, both for me and for my people. He's pointing out that he's above the Sabbath. He's more important than the Sabbath. 
the example or examples of Jesus on the Sabbath should be, must be, our controlling hermeneutic regarding the Sabbath. Right? If it's what Jesus did, it's the right thing to do. I know that sounds like a newsflash in church, but right, if Jesus does it, it's right. What was Jesus' life on the Sabbath marked by? Ministry and mercy. Week after week, Sabbath after Sabbath, this remarkable man's life was noted by ministry and mercy. As Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus is the embodiment of the law of the Sabbath. He is the embodiment of the spirit of that law regarding the Sabbath. I mean, when Jesus approached Peter and Andrew and James and John, you remember, and calls them as fishermen, he proved that he's Lord over daily laborers. He called Matthew, Levi, in the passage last week. He proved that he is Lord over what we might call Monday through Saturday in our present context. He's Lord over work days. But here, he proves that he's Lord of the day of rest too. The Son of Man is even Lord of the Sabbath. I've already proven I'm Lord of the other days, he's saying to the Pharisees. And now I'm saying I'm Lord of this day too. Again, in our present context, he's Lord of the work week and he's Lord of the weekend. He is Lord. So, what are violations of the law of the Sabbath? Again, like we have to look at the Lord of the Sabbath to figure this out. Necessities are not a violation of the Sabbath. Jesus makes that abundantly clear here in this passage. Mercies are not a violation of the Sabbath. Again, that's abundantly clear in this passage here. So, what may we do on the Lord's Day? Deeds of necessity. What must we do on the Lord's Day? Deeds of mercy. Our lives should be marked by those things that Jesus is doing. The necessary things, the merciful things, the serving other things, the worshiping Christ things. So a declaration of his authority and then a display of his authority. Verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, stretch out your hand. What a display. Before we get to the great display, Jesus looking around the religious elite, the Pharisees, knowing that they've set him up, they've already accused him of breaking the law. Imagine the, the accusation of God breaking his own law. The absurdity of that. And here Jesus looks at them with anger, knowing they're still trying to prove that he's a breaker of the divine law. Denying his divinity. Denying his deity. Looking around, them with, around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. His anger is righteous, unquestionably, but note that it's tempered with grief. He isn't just fiery and indignant at them. Well, there's a lot of displeasure toward their cold-hearted ritualism, but there's also deep-seated grief in response to the hardness of their hearts. And, And the grammar of the text is really wonderful. Not all of us get excited about grammar lessons. This, this one is something to get excited about. Okay? The anger towards them, looking around them at anger, is a momentary, short-lived, a snippet. The grief, the deep grief, is abiding. What a glorious reality that, that the, the anger at their rebellion and their empty ritualism and their hardness of heart was but for a moment. But the ongoing abiding grief and longing for them, desiring that they would come to repentance, is abiding. And in the midst of these emotions of our Lord, he displays his authority Stretch out 
your hand. Mark gives no other details. Just simply says, and he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. Faith. This man with the withered hand had faith. He believed Jesus. He took him at his word and did what he said. I mean, imagine the plethora of excuses this man could have had. The excuses not to obey. Already he's standing in front of everyone. He's been called to the front. Imagine being told to stretch out your hand that's never been stretched out before. That's completely withered up. Imagine how much more attention is drawn to the disability if it just doesn't work out. It's never happened before. He's never seen it happen. It's been withered since birth numerous years. And he listens to the words of Christ. Having been granted faith to believe, he stretches out his hand. He, he, Christ has given this man an unreasonable command. He's laid before him an impossible expectation. Do something that you've never done before. And we see no evidence of doubt in this man. He stretched it out. And it was healed. He doesn't reason with Christ saying, come on. Like, I've been living with this my whole life. What do you mean stretch it out? I, I can't. But he attempted to do the impossible. Stretching it out. In faith, he believed God. He acted in accordance with God's command. And he was healed. The Pharisees, on the other hand, with their made-up rules and expectations, simply get in the way of ministering to the needy and serving God. They're using the needy as a display to try to catch Jesus. They have no compassion or pity, no desire to show mercy or to do what is necessary. The withered hand in this story is nothing compared to the withered spiritual lives of the Pharisees and the hypocrites in this story. Oh, that God would help us to guard ourselves against a withering spirituality. But when we have critical spirits, when we are nitpicking about other people and their preferences, we are Pharisees, hypocrites. When we are more concerned about the lesser, prioritizing the peripheral, enamored with the edges, we are hypocrites and Pharisees. What are those edges what is the periphery for you? Your educational choices, your commitment to evangelism, size of your family. We could go on and on. We are so easily enamored with the small stuff. Not unimportant, but small in comparison to Christ. That's what Christ is saying here. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about worshiping Him. It's for us to give ourselves to Him. But these Pharisees in the passage are far more concerned with catching Christ than with showing compassion on the disabled man. And we can see the glaring problem in it as we read it and think through it. If they can just catch Christ slipping... It will justify, in their own twisted minds, if they can catch Christ slipping and breaking even their man-made laws, if they can catch him slipping, it'll justify their own lack of keeping the law. The, the laws that they made were keepable by their own standards. That's why they made them. They didn't like the laws of God. They couldn't keep them. But they could keep the ones that they made. Oh, that God would keep us, prevent us, protect us from doing the same. The law of the Sabbath and the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a sign. It's a sign of the sovereignty of God. 
it's helpful for us to consider whether or not this sign of God's sovereignty, of us being able to rest in him and hope in him, is it evident in our lives? Is there evidence of the sign of the sovereignty of God through Sabbath rest and Sabbath worship in our lives? I mean, really, why not take advantage of what he's given to us? Why volunteer to go back to brick baking in Egypt under Pharaoh where there's no rest? We've been made free in Christ. Why not revel in that? Sabbath observance is not accomplished by merely resting in Christ. It's a sign. You cannot adequately observe the Sabbath unless you're resting in Christ. So seek to rest in him and then take advantage of him being the Lord of the Sabbath and giving the Sabbath to us to be a delight. It's designed by God to be a blessing and a delight for his people. And even still, the blessing that it is, there are things that the Sabbath cannot do. The Sabbath couldn't feed the disciples in this passage. The Sabbath couldn't heal this man's hand. But what the Sabbath could not do, Jesus does. And the same is true for us. Jesus can grant us all that we need, has provided all that we need through his life and death both now and forever. The Pharisees went out, having seen this man stretch his hand out and fully restored. They went out and immediately began, verse 6 of chapter 3, conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Don't miss this hypocrisy. On the Sabbath, the day of the Lord, these Pharisees find themselves plotting the Lord's death. I told you they couldn't keep the law of God. They had no interest in that. You shall not murder. Furthest thing from their mind. As long as they don't take too many steps or untie any knots or any of the other 234 man-made ridiculous notions that they've come up with. The worst hypocrisy, unfortunately, is often connected closely with the truth. In fact, from time to time, people will send me something to read, something to listen to, and ask what I think about this teaching or or that concept. It hasn't been that long ago that someone asked me to consider something, some teaching uh, that they had come across. And it was suggested that the, the way forward... The, the benefit and the blessing for a greater group of people would be if an individual who had leadership responsibilities over those people would let go, be willing to let go of a few things and give in to a few things. And that may sound good at outset, but think about it for a minute. For a minute, we have the law of God. We have the scriptures And the worst hypocrisy is closely connected to the truth. So when you think about letting go of things like a commitment to the truth and letting go of the priority and sufficiency of Scripture or or giving in to a few things like loose interpretations of Scripture or giving in to covering over sinful behaviors, then it becomes problematic. Which is a warning call for us all. I said in the beginning, we are a bunch of hypocrites, but we don't want to be. God's not called us to be that. Now, granted, most of us are not coming to church week in and week out and plotting murder during the song service. So we may not be as guilty as these Pharisees here are here in the passage. And we may not be saying, you know, you need a little less commitment to the Scripture or you need to give in to the covering these sinful behaviors. But we are so prone to being little Pharisees or big Pharisees. I mean, it's one of the reasons that we set aside a time to seek the Lord in prayer 
corporately at the beginning of the service to, to fix our hearts to come in after the busy distractions of the week and the morning to fix our hearts again in order that we might worship him so that we're not living hypocrites and pharisaical in the midst of each other as we gather together on the Lord's day. The law of the Sabbath, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath? The doing of evil is prohibited on the Sabbath. But you know what? The doing of evil is prohibited no matter what day of the week it is for God's people. The doing of good is required on the Sabbath. But you know what? The doing of good is required for God's people no matter what day of the week it is. So let the law of the Sabbath be our guide as we seek the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of, the man, the Son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. That Sabbath that was made for man. For us to worship and revel and rest in what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. So though we're hypocrites, big and hypocrites small, Let's seek to follow Christ in him who knew no sin. There is this perfect path for us to follow. He came. He's left us an example in order that we might follow him, trekking the path that he trod all the way to the realms of glory. May God help us to follow his son wholeheartedly and very nearly all our days. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word, how exposing it is as we open up and feel the two-edged sword dividing our hearts. God, we thank you that your word is not only a sword opening us up, but it is salve to our souls. God, we thank you that with the exposure of sin and Pharisaic, pharisaical ideologies and hypocritical tendencies that the blood of Christ comes to cover even those sins. God, we thank you for the gospel. And we pray, God, that you would chase down those among us who are prone to running from you. For those who are living without you, God, we pray that you would save them here this morning. Help our hearts to be bent continually towards doing your will. Help us to hope more exclusively in the promises that you've made to us through Jesus Christ, who lived and died, was buried and raised again, who sits enthroned at your right hand as our advocate. God, those causes that he's pleading on our behalf now, we say to those yes and amen. And to those that we've asked just now, God, hear them in Christ's name as well. We pray. Amen.